Welcome to the new TV Gold podcast from Media Week's Andrew Mercado and James Manning, a podcast for people who love great television. On this episode of TV Gold, we look at Scrublands, a new series on Stan, a reality series, 007, Road to a Million, The Killer on Netflix, and also on Netflix, the Robbie Williams documentary. Welcome back, Andrew Mercado. Hi, James. Let's start with Scrublands this week, a new Australian series. It's on Stan from director Greg McLean from, uh, people know him from Wolf Creek, of course, and the very successful production company, Easy Tiger, which look in the last 12 months or so has been home to Colin from Accounts, The 12, and they've just made a second season, One Night, and now Scrublands. So these people are on fire. Yeah, they're having a very good year and Scrublands is another great entry from them. It's got that magic number we love, James, just four episodes. <laughs> I was able to knock it over in one day. Good cast, uh, fascinating uh, premise of a Catholic yeah. priest that uh, opens a rifle on his parishioners in the first scene and uh, then you, you pick it up from there. I love how there's that. This is, you know, well done to Stan. You know, if we're going to shout out Easy Tiger, we have to shout out Stan as being the yeah. streamer in Australia that makes the most local content. They're not just saving it for New Year's Day and Boxing Day now. They're pretty much launching new original Aussie drama and comedy all through the year. Um, but this one's a real uh, nine job, you know. it's I love it that... Luke Arnold plays a reporter from the Sydney Morning Herald. And, of course, he's really honourable and a good guy, um, but it's that awful TV tabloid reporter as played by Toby Truslove. He's the the journalist that's not playing by the rules. <laughs> I love that, you know, make the print journalist look good. But, look, it's a, it's a great yarn and it's a great cast. Luke Arnold, Jay Ryan, Bella Heath. Coat Adam Zwar, brilliant um, as the local cop. And also great to see Victoria Thane back in there, James. Okay. She was an actress, you know, back in 2007, she was the lead in a show called Rain Shadow with Rachel Ward. Um, and she's really good in that. And uh, I haven't seen her in much since, so it's really good to see her in this. Yeah, look, I've got to say, um, we haven't spoken before this because we don't like to sort of give spoils about how we feel about series, but I thought you might like this. I've got to say, I think I maybe even liked it more than you did. Wow. I just thought this was so brilliant. Um, it just it just really struck home. Everything is so good. That look, if I do have an issue with it, it's the the sort of the violence that opens the that first episode. And there's also something that happens at the very start of the second episode. It's obviously intrinsic to the story. Yeah. But, but having it right at the opening, I saw a reaction on someone else and they sort of reacted ne negatively and thought maybe this show's not for me. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to stick with it after those first few minutes and um, and it all it sort of unwinds from there. But it's uh, stunning stuff, yeah. Look, uh, and if you look, every element of this is is quality. We talked about Greg McLean and, gee, Wolf Creek. That I thought there was a real homage almost to Wolf Creek, the opening of that second episode. Oh, yeah, true. Uh, that, that, that was fantastic. Even if it's not, it's just I really got a thrill out of it because of that. 
but it's good work. The production company at the top of their game, the writing team, I think Felicity Packard was sort of the head writer and because she's worked on Wolf Creek too, of course. She worked on a lot of Underbelly. I think she was the creator and a writer on that series, Pine Gap. Yep. Um, which we sort of enjoyed some time ago. Uh, Kelsey Munro, I think, who was a former Sydney Morning Herald journalist who also created, I think, Bump and yep. was a writer there. And Jock Sarong turns up with a writing credit, the uh, the novelist. So they've had some real talent on this and you've already gone through the cast. Luke Arnold, who I always remember fondly from Never Tear Us Apart. Of course, playing Michael Hutchins. I think he actually won a, um, a Logie for that too, maybe. Uh, Bella Heathcote is just wonderful as the sort of a bookshop proprietor in this small town with a link to, you know, a, a central character we don't find out about pretty much until the end of that second episode, I think. You're sort of yeah. you're wondering a few things about it but, it, but it all becomes clear. She's great. She was in court recently. Yeah. Uh, we saw her in that and she was in one of my favourites a couple of years ago, uh, The Man in the High Castle. Right. Um, Jay Ryan is Byron Smith. The oh, God, I love Jay Ryan. The pastor. Wow, he's so good. Look, I loved him in No Escape, which was, I was a big fan of that earlier this year on Paramount+. Plus. And um, I forgot about this. He was a regular in Sea Patrol back in the day too, so he's he's been acting for a little while. Well, look, he'll always be the guy that started on Neighbours for me. I mean, he was uh, in the big romance with Delta Goodrum back uh, in the the days that she was on that show. So, yeah, he's a New Zealand actor. He's not Australian-born. He's a New Zealand actor, and he's in that New Zealand show we talked about briefly, Creamery, which was about all the men in the world were dead and these women were were on this dairy farm and he, he appeared to be the last man standing. I've... I've never had time to go back to that series. It was a mad concept, but I love it that he gets to pop back and, and still do some stuff in New Zealand as well. Yeah, I think that's on SBS, Creamery. Yeah, SBS, yeah. Yeah, well, I definitely want to look that up, and I'm glad you mentioned Adam Zwar. He's just so good as the the copper in this, the local policeman. He's just really good. Uh, Scott Major turns up in this too, I think. Yeah. We both enjoy his work. He was great. And Robert Taylor, who was the sort of senior newsreader in um, in the newsreader. It's funny. I didn't have a problem with the violence. Uh, that well, over- problem's probably overselling it. I, I think it can give you the wrong idea right at the start about what the yeah. might be. And, that, look, it is going to be shocking for people to see a Catholic priest shooting people in his congregation. You know, that's a very startling way to make a series. And I'm the first person to complain if I think something is too violent or too graphic or unnecessarily bloody and all that. But, yeah, yeah I thought this was in context. Yeah. Uh, and it was it was just so shocking. It almost made me want to go, why did he do that? There's got to be something more to that. And I got very nervous, actually, with the suggestion that he was a pedophile. I was like, oh, are we going down that track? And uh, But, you know, that's, you know, just part of a much, much bigger, a picture of the story, you know, because, you know, I get concerned about, um, uh, you know, there is a warning at this when it starts. And I don't think the warning's about you're going to be shocked by the violence. I think the warning is there for uh, victims of uh, 
sexual abuse to go this to, to make you be aware that this might be a show uh, if that, that that might trigger something for you. Yeah, I, I thought um, Jay Jay Ryan's character of Brian, Brian Byron uh, Smith reminded me a little bit of the guy Martin in the Sixth Commandment. You know the oh yeah bloke who goes into the the sort of the English village and befriends and and yeah. then, um some of the sort of the, the people in the village. I thought yeah. there were similarities between the the two characters who were both both very you know unlikable and creepy sort of people, but there was a physical resemblance between both the actors. I thought too. Yeah, but, but ultimately, Jay Ryan's character isn't uh, all evil guy the way that that other guy was in the Sixth Commandment. No. You know, no. he does have some really good elements to him, some of the stuff he's doing. He's unconventional, let's put it that way. Yeah, but I guess when you gun down five people yeah. <laughs> outside yeah. your church, it's hard to find too many redeeming features. Yeah. It's based on a novel by Chris Hammer, which I would really like to read. I didn't know much about it before this, but I think that was set in um, southern New South Wales. Yeah, like the Riverina district. Correct, yeah, but they've actually filmed most of this further south in Victoria, I think around Castlemaine and Malden, yeah. some sort of towns that have been well-preserved with um, with a lot of old buildings, and it's it's really got a great sort of that regional small-town feel about it. Yeah, yeah. There's lots and lots of close-ups all the time of that kind of Anzac Day statue of the fallen soldier in the town. You know, it's, it's the camera is constantly sort of looking at that, and then that's a clue actually to what's going to unfold if you think back now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's there's certainly lots in this, and it's again, look, I say it's a fair bit. I I, I like watching some episodes twice, and this is one where I've already watched uh, the opening episode twice just to get a. A, a, a proper feel for for there's quite a bit going on, you know. So it was, yeah, uh, yeah. I I did enjoy that. Okay, so that's Scrublands. That's on Stan. That's uh, up live now and four episodes. I guess there's. Well, we can segue to the killer, can we? Sort of? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about violence. Yeah, yeah. So this is a David Fincher movie. Um, I think it had a week in the cinemas. We mentioned last week it w was coming up, and it tells the story of a of an assassin, if you like, um, played played by um, Michael, Michael Fassbender. Fassbender. Yeah, yeah, it was very good in it, but it's a it's a it's one of those minimalist movies, isn't there? there there's not a lot of dialogue for a lot of the movie. There's, there's not a lot of interaction with other cast members for much of the film. It's very much a solo. Um, effort pretty much by our Fassbender, isn't it? Look, the, the the most important thing about this movie is that The Killer is directed by David Fincher, one of my favourite directors. Fight Club is one of my all-time favourite films and, you know, most of the stuff he does I really like. And, look, this was really watchable. It's short and sharp at two hours. You know, you're, you're in and out. It's not yeah. dragged out to a ridiculous length. But I've got to admit, I don't 
understand why it exists. I've seen it all before. Honestly, if I see one more movie or TV series about an assassin, you know, that's shooting people at high range from buildings, like, I'm sorry, it's been done to death. And I know that they're trying really, really hard in this film to do it slightly different and, and, and all of that. And, uh, but yeah, I just watched it. And when it finished, I just went, yes, so what? Beautifully shot, great performances, but literally one of the most unoriginal things I've seen this year. Literally seen it all before. Yeah, I did. I said to someone, you know, I was talking about this and was there any good? And I said, yeah, but at the end of it, you sort of think, yeah, but why, you know? Why? It was, um, there doesn't seem a lot of reason for it. I mean, it's, it's quite, it's quite stylish, you know, it's, um, and I like the minimalism. I like the sort of sparseness, especially at the, the beginning, but it doesn't really go anywhere, does it? If I could put it like that, you know, there's some of the other characters you think, well, really is he, you know, is that sort of relationship he has with these other people that, that I guess he sort of works for in his business as an assassin, if you like. Um, Tilda Swinton is almost a little bit wasted. I didn't quite understand her character, to be honest. Barely in it. Um, you know what? I blame Netflix <laughs> because, honestly, Netflix have sent him off to make this movie when I think all of us would have much preferred that Netflix had given David Fincher the money to make a third series of Mindhunter, that mm -hmm. incredible series which was doing a look at serial killers but not the same old shit. It was actually looking at the psychology behind them and looking at FBI agents who were going around America interviewing serial killers to try to get into their head to find out the way they think. It was such a great series and I think people were really disappointed that it didn't go to a third series. And instead, Netflix throw this bone to David Fincher and say, oh, you make us a movie about an assassin. What? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it starts off as quite a lengthy um, beginning. It's set up in a, in a, it's in a WeWork, I think he is in Paris. <laughs> he seems to have his own room in there and it gives him a perfect view of the, of his target where, you know, there's a, it must be a hotel room or a, an apartment across yeah. the square in Paris and he's got a good view into there and he just has to wait a long time for the, for the person to show up that he's has to um has to kill and you see him going through all the process and how he sleeps and stays awake and just never moves far away from his vantage point to get a look and it turns out he doesn't he doesn't the kill goes wrong right he, yeah. he doesn't yeah. get this person and that has big consequences for his own safety you know so yeah he's in a lot of trouble because of that and the the film sort of rolls on from there. But, yeah, and then he goes home to the, I think, in the Dominican Republic, and that's all a little bit confusing. You've got to sort of work out what's going on. And, yeah, no, I just, um, it's it's not brilliant, you know. You, you stick with it because it is well, sure. It's, it's good sure. to look at. It's, yeah, it's good to look at. And it's good to see Michael Fassbender on the screen again. It's not like he acts all the time. It's all, no. you know, it's all very perfunctory, but I don't understand 
what the point of it was when we've seen so many movies and shows like that before. Yeah. Again, I somehow feel if I watch this a second time, it might have, have some more meaning to me. But, gee, I don't know if I could, you know, if I had the uh, the spare time to actually think that was worthwhile. Yeah. Okay, so The Killer, that is a movie on Netflix. Let's go to a reality show. Now, this is this is unusual because the, the James Bond people don't franchise out the 007 or James Bond or any of their licensing, really. They just keep it for the Bond movies, don't they? Yeah. This is the first time there's almost been a – it's not really a spin-off of Bond, is it, but something that's licensed the, the product, if you like. And what they've come up with is a – reality series that gives people tasks oh. to to win a million was it a million pounds i think it was wasn't it was a million dollars this i mean if you thought the killer was didn't make much sense this is just this oh. is a shocker <laughs> this is an absolute shocker this is basically the amazing race but with trivia Man. It's like, honest to God, Brian Cox from Succession is sitting there doing the narration and supposedly sitting in some control room. And when it finally comes time for him to do his stuff, they open up the um, they open up the uh, cameras, and there is a bloody you know a multiple choice questionnaire could you please answer this question for us i just thought it was shocking shocking yeah, this is terrible i defy anybody to get past the first episode and keep going yeah yeah just really there's just no interest and look i don't know a lot about making reality tv shows but i'm guessing there's rules about look never let the audience get bored you know i suppose keep it moving and and have interesting challenges and things. There's just nothing here to really keep you keep you engaged at all, I found. Nothing. Those two English geezers in the first episode. <laughs> well, yeah, he used, he used to be as, as, as big as a turtle. And, and he's like, what is happening? Honest to God, unlikable contestants, really piss weak, you know, <laughs> answer a multiple choice like you're at uh, trivia. It's just insanely boring. And uh, what on earth was Barbara Broccoli uh, yeah. doing, buying into this? Basically, it's just basically the amazing race, but with um, the music from James Bond. That appears to be the only connection to the entire Bond franchise. And, you know, there's, you're right. They're so particular about protecting that, and yet they're willing to then throw it all away with a reality show that's just a rip-off of every other reality show. It's madness. Yeah, it is. Look, I don't really blame Brian Cox for getting involved. I mean, he's you would imagine the... The offer was too good to knock back, perhaps, and I'm I'm guessing he's probably um, getting more for this than any of the contestants could possibly win in the series. But um, I've seen it's been suggested elsewhere that um, this his his appearance in this is sort of wrecking <laughs> wrecking his legacy for, for a succession. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but um, you do look at him in a slightly different way, don't you? When he he just doesn't look, I don't know, he's not menacing at all in this and he's not 
It's not particularly likable. He's not really intrinsic to it at all, is he? Yeah. And can, can, you, can you imagine what his character in Succession would have said about a show like this if one of his kids had pitched it? It's just like, get that rubbish out of here, but with many more four-letter words. Oh, we mean very colourful language. Yes. Get this off the airwaves. Exactly. You imagine some of the sort of reaction Kerry Packer would have too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whose idea what was thinking? What yeah, were so- they thinking? 007 Road to a Million, believe it or not, there's eight episodes. Oh. I found it weird, too, they didn't feature all the contestants in that first episode. Yeah, that really sucked that opening. I mean, most reality shows give you almost like a highlights reel at the yeah. beginning to go, look at all these amazing places we're going to go to. Instead, it just starts off in the Hebrides Islands off Scotland with questions about British royalty. And then they're in Venice, and I was like, how did they get there? What's happening? It's just terrible. <laughs> it is. It's a shocker. It's on... Uh, Prime, it's a rare slip, really. Prime have had some good stuff lately, but they've um, they've been seduced by, I guess, the thought of having um, Brian Cox and the thought of having access to more Bond um, Bond content, if you like. Yeah, clearly it's some sort of, what, did they get the library of films at the same time for us? You know, they've certainly done some deal that gives them access because that library of James Bond films, it does shift around from streamer to streamer. And whoever has it, someone else is always waiting in the wings to buy it as soon as the rights run out because clearly people are still watching those films over and over again. Yeah, I think Prime had that. Was it the James Bond music special earlier this year? That's right. They did. You're they did. right. They did. Which was actually not too bad. Yeah, that was really great. Yeah, so that was good. So maybe there was some link between them as a as a double package. If you if you took the music special, you had to take this lemon as well. So yeah, <laughs> I'm not too sure. Okay, so 007 Road to a Million. We both recommend avoiding that one, and it's yeah. on Prime. Look, the last big series we'll look at this week is uh, Robbie Williams' documentary on Netflix. Again, our favourite number, just four episodes. And the last one's just over half an hour, I think. It's actually quite short. It sort of wraps it up pretty quickly. Uh, look, I I had different opinions as I watched this. I started off thinking, oh, really? Then I found it a bit more interesting. Then I, then I sort of shied away from it. Then you find out about some of his mental health issues and you, I started to throw him some slack. And in the end, I'm a little bit confused, but I, I guess I did find it entertaining, you know. Look, it's not what you would expect from Robbie Williams. You, what you expect from Robbie Williams if he's doing a four-part documentary on his life is that it would be the ego has landed. It's him sitting there going, I'm so fantastic because that's part of the persona of the Robbie Williams brand. But this is very, very different because this takes you in behind the scenes, makes him watch footage of himself backstage over the last 25 years, most of which he has never, ever watched before. And he's clearly very uncomfortable watching this footage. Um, He's sitting here on his bed in a T-shirt and a pair of undies. He doesn't (laughs) even put a pair of pants on as he watches this laptop. But, look, I am 
Robbie Williams fan forever. If I had to go to a desert island and I could only take two artists CDs with me, I'd just take Robbie Williams and Kylie Minogue, and that's enough for me. You know, I'm oh, just with them for really? life. It's all I want to do is is listen to his music or listen to her music. And one of the reasons I love him so much is because I wasn't in Australia when Take That were a thing. I was living in Canada and they weren't a thing over there. So I didn't know who he was from Take That. As soon as he released that first single, Freedom, I was back in Australia. I saw it and went, who's that? I really like him. I went out and bought that Cassie single at the time, or I think it was a CD single. And then I had to order his first album from the UK because that album did not go on sale here in Australia. They waited till he brought out his second album and then they combined the but uh, the best of both albums into one CD and had to launch him here in Australia. And his launch in Australia coincided with him coming to Channel V when we used to make the joint at 10.30 at night. And he was coming to do two musical numbers. And instead, he just stayed and chatted and took over the whole show. And we threw the whole program out the window and just made it the Robbie Williams hour. And everybody who was working in Foxtel that night, because people used to work in the tape library and all that till late at night and all of that, everybody left what they were doing and came in and stood in the studio to watch this consummate entertainer performer who just continued entertaining us in the commercial breaks by telling us jokes too rude to go on air like he is the uh, the all-time greatest entertainer and what i am still hoping he will do one day is that the bbc will throw him a shitload of money and he will bring back variety on a saturday night and do the robbie williams show because he can do it all he can interview people he can do comedy skits he can sing and so i actually found watching his Netflix documentary, I found it quite hard to watch because I felt really sorry for him that he suffered mental health issues about thinking that he wasn't good enough because that bloody British press somehow painted a target on his back and was always out to get him. And I still don't know what he ever did to incur their wrath, except leave, take that. That, that seemed to be what made him a target, and they just treated him like shit and really have for his entire career. Yeah, I guess that, um, I mean, there is a lot of you, there is a lot about Robbie Williams, the ego in this, mm-hmm. and, and which is good because, I mean, look, they say he didn't have control over the content, but you get the feeling looking at this, he probably would have had some say. Because the film is basically him trawling through videotapes. He's sitting there looking at his laptop of all these. And there's something like um, 30 years of footage. And it looks like they had a backstage, someone shooting video wherever they went all the Correct. time. Yeah. Um, 30,000 hours in total there was. So wow. I'm guessing he probably saw a cut down of I don't know how much, maybe, I mean, let's say, 30, 40 hours or something, I don't know. And then, you know, they filmed his reactions, got his, you know, what his reaction becomes the sort of soundtrack to a lot of this. It's a very different way of doing a docker, as you said. There's yeah. not talking heads or the other people. 
what you see is really just all the stuff. And that's quite fascinating what happens. But And quite triggering for him. He's yeah. seeing footage and saying, I don't want to watch this next bit. I'm about to have a breakdown. This is making me feel really uncomfortable because I know what's coming next. This is not an easy watch for him. And, and you see the good side of him, the happy side where he's having fun, and then you see the side where he is at rock bottom. Yeah. But look, I, I can't help feeling that, because he reacts so so badly to negative press criticism, the press sort of get off on that in a way. Because he gets on stage and he's telling the audience, he'll complain to the audience about the way he's treated. He, there's one scene, I think he's on the phone to the son, complaining about the treatment he's getting. And you just think, look, he's way too thin-skinned. For, for somebody of his stature, you know, don't let it worry you so much because I think a lot of people think, oh, look, if I write a negative review, that's, he's really going to go off on this and it'll help us, I don't know, sell papers or help build my profile as a journo or something like that. So he keeps referring to it all the time. You know, he, he complains about the critics and he points, he can even remember specific criticisms, the opening lines, the specific reviews of either albums or concerts he's done. He complains a lot about the paparazzi. To me, again, it's like, you know, oh, boo-hoo. You know, you want someone to take your photo when you're promoting something, but any other time it's all off limits. You you know, you can't control every aspect of your life like that, I don't think. Um, so I just, you know, I was thinking for a while, I'll just, just toughen up, but then you see him really suffering and so you, so you do feel sorry for him, you know. Look. I disagree somewhat because that part in the doco where he releases that album Rude Box and mm. the English press are sitting there waiting to go, this is the worst single of all time. Look, give me a break. Rude Box, if you're a Robbie Williams fan, it's a great album and it's just a slight change of direction. It's the fact that the English press are so lying in wait for him and can't wait to print negative stuff about him, as they always want to do. And what disturbs me about this situation, and we've seen this in the Beckham documentary and all of this stuff, what disturbs me about this is that I can't actually see much evidence of the British press ever supporting him. I mean, at least here in Australia, our tall poppy syndrome is we build you up, you become a big success, we celebrate that until you do something wrong, and then we decide it's time to cut you down to size. What I see with the Robbie Williams story is that the British press were out to get him from day one, and he probably didn't help things by being a smart ass and by going, look at me, I'm so great, I've sold so many records. But I don't see that they ever gave him credit for how big and popular that he was. It feels to me like that English press was just always going for the nasty on him. And I think that sort of treatment, years and years of it, I mean, this is a man who's so uh, traumatised by that, he says he's never going to live in England again. He's left the country. He lives in LA now where he can live away from the spotlight. You know, that's a, a terrible indictment that you get run out of your own country because the press is just not willing to give you a break ever. That's my problem with this story. I don't think the, the press ever, ever gave him a break despite his popularity. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, again, I just think he's probably 
you know, he needs just to get over it a bit, you know. I mean. <laughs> well, hopefully this doco is, is, is what that is doing. Hopefully this is yeah. a form of, um, you know, uh, you know, reevaluating your life and looking back, maybe this is him trying to get over it. Yeah, because you see, like he's pretty cut up about take that, and he didn't have anything nice to say about the well, the first time he left. Take that, he was only there five years, then he quits. Yeah, and he had some terrible things to say about the band, but he eventually came around. He rejoined for a, well, it was another six or seven year period, whatever it was. Yeah, and then he subsequently left again. But you can see him going through those. You know, fractious relationship, mending again. Um, I think there was that his um, collaborator, Guy Chambers. Yeah. They had a pretty big breakup. I don't think they ever got back together again. No, look, I think they did. I've, I've been meaning to Google that ever since I watched it. I'm almost convinced that after that breakup, Guy Chambers has come back at some point, whether it was on one of his swing albums or, yeah, I've been meaning to look that up. But I found that fascinating and I wish that I'd known a little bit more about Guy Chambers at the time because clearly Guy Chambers was in that uh, Channel V studio at Piermont back in the day. But we were all so fascinated by Robbie Williams. I don't think any of us paid any attention to anyone else in his band. But, you know, it was very clear to me that he was part of a group. You know, when that band arrived, they were very much a bunch of mates and friends. But then when Robbie Williams starts singing, your entire attention is drawn towards him. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just – I'm having a quick look at – at Guy Chambers' discography, and there's quite a bit of work with Robbie later in the um, in the sort of around about 2018, 2019. Yeah, yeah, they so, they did sort of kiss and make up towards the towards the end there. I'm not sure. But if I loved I loved how this documentary was actually quite honest in in showing that he was a big part of uh, Robbie Williams' success. Yeah, uh, and uh, until he said, I need to go out on my own and, and do something not with you. And then he goes off to work with Stephen Tintin Duffy, you know? Yeah. But there's that scene as a, as a during a press conference and he sort of unloads telling people, look, I actually can write and yeah. um, some of my own songs, you know. He gets really quite angry. Yeah. Um, you can imagine people just sitting there going, yeah, okay, really, you know, just chill out a little bit, mate, you know. Um but yeah, it is it is quite a fascinating look look at his life, and um, something that I, I I stayed with, you know. So I, I did think about, oh, do I want to watch all this? So after that first episode, it's quite full on, but um, I took a break. I came back to it, and then I started enjoying what was left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Robbie Williams, four episodes on Netflix. And you know what? I'm going back through my Robbie Williams CD collection, listening to them all. Uh, and you, you go back to that first album and wow, what a debut. It was like, yeah, the guy was on fire from, from day one. He, he picked very smartly making Guy Chambers his first songwriting partner. Yeah. And it's obvious too that negative press certainly didn't hamper his career. It doesn't seem in the UK or anywhere else because. His popularity, I mean, was that three successive nights at Nemworth? He, he yeah. performed, you know, all these sold-out shows all around England, massive stadiums right across Europe. And the the number of, you know, it was over a 100-night tour or something he was 
was doing. It was amazingly um, the stammery, the stamina he would have needed to that, and the and I guess the mental impact that must be quite draining as well as hugely the physical toll of all that performance. But yeah, you know, it's it's um it's a good it's a good show to watch. Look, a couple of other things quickly this week. Um, I watched on Apple TV Plus, Niad, I think it's called. No, it's on Netflix, isn't it? No, no. I'm pretty sure it's Apple TV. Oh, What's it about? Is this about the swimmer? The swimmer. No, it's Netflix, man. I was just watching it? it. Oh, sorry. Jodie Foster and Annette Benny. Okay. okay. It's a Netflix movie. Yeah. All right. Oh, that's why I've got my I got my knickers in a nod over that because I put <laughs> prices up significantly and Apple TV Plus and I was thinking, oh, really? I, I, tried to, I tried to watch it, but I'm, I'm only halfway through it. You know, she's in the water vomiting and not sure if she can complete the swim. So, yeah, you've watched the whole film. How is it? Is it worth the, the watch? Uh, it is, yeah. Look, I really enjoyed it. I just watched it because Jodie Foster and Annette Benning, totally. something, to, something to watch, an easy watch on a Saturday night. I thought this could be good. And it's really quite an amazing story. I knew nothing about the sort of the long-distance American swimmer um, and her attempts to swim from Cuba to Florida. Yeah. she. I think she tried four times. The third time was I think she was about 28 years old. She failed. She failed on the first three attempts. Now, 30 years later, she thought, oh, look, she started swimming again. She hadn't even been swimming. She goes, oh, yeah, I still feel pretty good. And she decides to have another crack at it. And, you know, that's that's how the film ends. And it's just amazing. Now, Jodie Foster, sort of a, a, her best friend, becomes a coach for this final attempt. And it's just just an amazing piece of filmmaking, I thought. And how great is Annette Benning? You know, oh, yeah. you look at her and go, you know, she's not getting plastic surgery. She's not getting Botox. She's allowing herself to age gracefully. And she yeah. gets to play a character like this, and she does it so well. And I love the fact that Jodie Foster's playing her friend because when I was looking at the posters, I was like going, oh, well, clearly they're lovers. I'm getting a real <laughs> lesbian vibe from this, and it had the LGBT, you know, symbol on it. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's about a couple. And then you watch it and go, oh, no, they're just good friends. Yeah, so interesting. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely finish watching it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's very good, very good. It's pretty obvious, I guess, what we're going to pick as our show of the week. Yes, indeed. It's Scrublands for me. Yeah, same for me. It has to be. Has to be. Now, James, I've got a tip for you. Something I watched this week on SBS, Uh-oh. just by accident. I just yeah. switched the channel and went, "Oh yeah, yeah, I, I want to watch this." Man, it was so great. The yeah. Lost City of Melbourne. It was oh. all about how they were knocking down all of the buildings in Melbourne, starting oh. in the fifties and the sixties, and then in the seventies. And it's about how they had to. What was the uh, tipping point for the Melburnians to go stop destroying our beautiful old buildings. You know, the city doesn't, we don't need to be modern by destroying everything mm. we've ever had. And, you know, there was a whole section on all of these beautiful suburban cinemas in Melbourne that were Art Deco palaces that they just knocked down for service stations. TV came in and they just went through and bulldozed them. My God. But David Kilderry, 
who uh, was running a drive-in in Melbourne, which very sadly has had to close, not because it wasn't successful, but because drive-ins can't afford to pay the land tax anymore because uh, they don't, you know, they can't make enough money to do that. And he was there talking about that cinema history, and it made me very sad to watch it. It just, I was, it was so sad looking at all these buildings knocked down. But then it finishes on this point where at least uh, you are reminded that Melbourne is one of the only cities in the world to still have its three biggest theatres still standing, which is the Regent, the State, which became the Forum, and a third one. Um, but, you know, it's the capital, it a, the capital or maybe the one that beca- the Metro that be- became that they're still fiddling around with today because one okay. of those great venues – the, 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 they've, they've been trying to knock that down for years. So nothing is safe anymore. And it's just, just a, a great reminder about buildings that have been around for so long and hold so many memories for people, how important it is to, to save culture. And, uh, yeah, so it'll be on SBS On Demand, The Lost City of Melbourne, just the most beautifully made documentary. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Melbourne and, Every every suburb used to have its own cinema, you know. Yeah. Great big movie palace, you know, in the pride of the place in the in the main street, uh, often near the station. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, it's there's virtually none of them left, I guess. No, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the film the film's very good at showing you that what is it's what still has survived. And oh. Melbourne has a great cinema culture today because there still has been enough interest there. They've certainly got more of a cinema culture than Sydney. Yes, yeah. I know the the classic in Elstonwick. I think is one that still yeah. goes. It's up near Elstonwick Station there, near the old studios of the ABC. Yeah, um, yeah, just and they've got the, the Astor Cinema there at St Kilda and the Sun Cinema at Yarraville. Some of them okay. still exist, but you look at some of the pictures of the ones they knocked down, it's like, oh, how could you knock that down? There was this one theatre that were, that had like a space age, you know, like a UFO, the box office. You okay. went into this kind of tube and there was this tube place where you got your tickets. It's like, who would knock that down? It was so incredible. Very good. Okay, The Lost City of Melbourne on SBS, a little bonus recommendation there from Andrew Mercado. Andrew, thank you for joining us this week. Uh, you can read Andrew's column every Friday at mediaweek.com.au, also published in our daily uh, Media Week morning report newsletter. Do you know where you're venturing this week, Andrew? Yeah, I'm going to write about Scrublands, and I'll also I've got a few things to say about the demise of Studio 10, which has just been axed by 10. Yeah, uh, sad. It's been going for quite a while. Excellent, Andrew. Okay, many thanks. Our show of the week, of course, Scrublands. Watch out for that on Stan right now. Speak to you next week. Thanks, James. Have a great week.